The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. Thank you for joining Beside Still Waters podcast with Christian Javois. Beside Still Waters is the moment in our day when we seek stillness in God's presence, guidance from the Word of God, and grace to live by faith. This is the moment when we view horizontal living from the divine perspective. For the eyes of Jehovah run to and fro through the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of those whose heart is perfect toward him. Now here's today's message. We hope it will be a blessing. Welcome to Beside Still Waters. Thank you for joining me today. and We are going to continue in our series, uh, the Blue Sky Chronicles, dealing with the subject of open eyes. And uh, today we're thinking and talking about uh, seeing risk and opportunities. Now before I get there, I just want to recap a little bit about what we've been uh, discussing in the previous two podcasts. We were looking at uh, the unseen things, you know, and and what it means to have eyes that see. Uh, We uh, discussed uh, the unseen place, which is heaven, and and sending forth uh, your treasures rather than storing them in a place where moth and and rust and thieves can break in and steal. And uh, the unseen light, referring to darkness, which, according to the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, darkness is also a form of light. Uh, but it's a light that, uh, that uh, uh, creates a hindrance, if you will, a blockage. And you can't see, you can't discern as well. The, the apparatus used for seeing, that is the, the eyes of the heart, are obstructed. And therefore, one is walking, living in blindness. And the Pharisees were a great example of this because they were the religious leaders, the spiritual leaders, but the Lord Jesus referred to them as the blind leading the blind. Uh, So evidently, uh, to uh, walk in darkness is to be walking in a sort of light that is filled with obstruction and uh, disease, if you will, and the fact that the seeing person really isn't whole. They are in need of healing. And of course, the unseen master, uh, uh, contrasting God and mammon, money. Therefore, uh, the Lord Jesus is spending quite a considerable amount of time on on, on eyes that see. And then uh, later on in, in, in uh, Matthew chapter 6, he dealt with worry being uh, a form of blindness, if you will. Uh, and uh, the Lord Jesus went on to teach his disciples about uh, birds uh, gathering and storing, or the fact that they don't do so and they're cared for by our Heavenly Father and the lilies of the field as compared to Solomon in all his glory, which Solomon could not uh, compare to what God has done with these uh, uh, you know, flowers of the grass that last but a day and are thrown into an oven. But he was really bringing their attention to the fact that they are worrying about things that God is cognizant of, that we all have need of. What we shall eat, what we shall drink, what we shall put on. And then at the very end of that discourse, he, he rivets the attention by saying, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So it came down to a reprioritization of what is 
really important to us. But they all have the same foundational teaching, and that is eyes that see. Eyes that see. And, and, and when a person can see clearly, without obstruction, they are able to put in rank order the things that are important. God's rule, God's righteousness, uh, juxtaposed to what I shall eat and drink, the things that are for my natural sustenance and care. And he gives a promise. He gives a promise that our Heavenly Father, knowing that we have need of these things, if we put him and the kingdom of heaven as our primary objective to serve, to love, to encourage, to walk with God, he will provide the things that we have need of. Therefore, we need to walk it out by faith. And now, yet again, we come to uh, Matthew chapter 7. And he's talking about judging and uh, holiness <laughs> and answered prayer. Now, you say, well, I, I don't think these matters have anything to do with happen, having uh, open eyes. But they do. Because when we read the narrative and he exhorts not to judge that you may not be judged, for with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged with that same measure. The same measure that you meet, that's what will be meted out to you. And then he asks, why do you look on the moat that is in the eye of your brother, but observe not the beam that is in your own eye? So clearly, evidently, uh, there's a great disparity between what's in my brother's eyes and what is mine. But, but here, here is the key. The fact that he says the same judgment that you uh, apply to a brother and the same measure that you use in that judgment, it shall be measured to you. And that is the operative word, shall. It shall be measured to you. Now, the question is, do I see that? And then, of course, he talks about uh, giving what is holy to dogs or to swine. Okay, so we're, now we're, we're talking about seeing the character of the recipient, the thing that is treasured, juxtaposed to the person's character that we're giving it to, sharing it with. And then lastly, seeing need. So what we're really going to talk about today are three laws. The laws of judgment, the law of holiness, the law of answered prayer. And I call them laws because the Lord Jesus applies the same operative word. The same measure that you judge, you shall be judged. Okay? And when he speaks of answered prayer, ask and it shall be given you. And so let's take some time to, to talk about this. Seeing the fault of another moves a person to judge. Seeing the character of another makes the thing holy or not. And again, 
it's not so much the character of the person who's going to be receiving our pearls, <laughs> but it's what makes it holy. Are we able to discern what is holy from what is profane? And of course, seeing the need brings to my attention what needs to be met. There's a gap. There's a deficiency. And so sometimes, uh, for example, uh, you will see a lot uh, nowadays about the uh, law of attraction. The law of attraction. And that is uh, uh, bringing into a person's life prosperity simply by focusing in a specific way on that desired thing. Prosperity coming to a person because they are, quote-unquote, attracting it into their lives by what they're focusing on. But this is a flawed concept because this is a moral universe belonging to an infinite, eternal, omnipotent, omniscient God who governs the universe according to his will and power. So the scriptures really brings to our attention certain laws. And a law is simply that which is unalterable, like the law of gravity. You hold something in your hand, you release it, and almost often it will fall to the ground because the law of gravity takes over. Now, if you were to attach a string and, and inflate a balloon with helium, you're putting another law, law of buoyancy, if you will. <laughs> another law supersedes the law of gravity and takes that thing and makes it airborne. Well, the Lord Jesus deals with the law of judgment. That is, what happens when I recognize a fault, a flaw, a moral or character deficiency? And when the fault becomes evident, whether in me or in another, how do I respond to that? What do I do with that? So I think the first consideration is I have to determine whose fault I will judge, the person's or my own. And now I want to make some clarification. We will try to make this really very simple. When the scripture speaks of judging, it is the act of putting oneself or making oneself both the judge on a bench and the jury. So we are going to identify and draw certain conclusions about the person's character or flaw. And we are exercising an effort to identify the flaw or the fault, whether theirs or our own. Secondly, we are in effect setting up, if you will, a tribunal to determine who has the, <laughs> the most prominent fault. And this is germane to exercising this standard. Okay? What am I about to do when I see another's flaw in their character? or in mine. And so in, in uh, 
Matthew chapter 7, first couple of verses, the Lord Jesus exhorts us not to judge. Why? Because as soon as we establish ourselves as a tribunal of one man, (laughs) both judge and jury, residing in myself, at that very instant, I have triggered the law of judgment. He says that you may not be judged, for with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. That is the law of judgment. That is the law that's uh, triggered when I look at another and I look at my flaws, my character uh, uh, faults, shortcomings, and I set up a tribunal to evaluate them. And that word judge, krino is the the term, the the, uh, uh, Greek term, but it means to pick out, to put on trial, to pass judgment. To act, if you will, as a judge presiding with judicial decisioning. Or to place yourself as a potentate, like a king making a decree. And the the measurement that we're using is as though we're using an instrument that measures both dry and liquid substances. So we are, we have an option, we have a choice, and that choice is I can look at them or I can examine myself. And so when we go on, he, he, the, the Lord Jesus talks about looking at, at the moat that is in the eye of your brother and not the beam in your own eye. Now this is, this is rather comical because uh, upon further examination, a moat is just a twig. It's chaff. As compared to a beam, weight-bearing timber. A beam is in my eye, a moat is in his. But I've set myself to evaluate my brother, and I've completely ignored the larger obstacle in my own vision. And so there's a disproportionate focus. We've lost sight. There's an imbalance. And when this law kicks in, when we have triggered this law, what we don't recognize is that we have tipped the balance. We are focusing all of our energies on something that's chaff in our brother's eye, a flaw, a character uh, fault, if you will. But the greater obstacle is in my own life, and I have failed to recognize it. I failed to recognize it. And the Lord Jesus uses the term look versus observe. So looking is simply beholding with the eye to utilize the senses. But observing is to perceive, to fix the mind upon. So when I'm looking at my brother, I'm just observing by my eyes something that I conclude as a judge and jury. That's a pretty big fault my brother has. But I have not exercised the senses, the eyes of the heart to examine my own life and recognize there are probably larger issues for me to wrestle with. So the tools that I'm using to make the assessment, to make the the, uh, judicial pronouncement are different. When I look at another, I'm just simply observing with my eyes. I don't know the history of that fault or flaw. I have no idea what their circumstances are. 
I don't have a working knowledge, a clear understanding of the issues and events in their lives that might lead to that thing, that, that flaw being clearly evident to me. But what the Lord Jesus is exhorting me to do and exhorting you as devotees is to examine by use of the eyes of the heart and the, the, um, the constraint that the eyes of the heart are subject to is I can only apply it to myself. You see, that brother or sister might have to take time to disclose a little of their history and their challenges for me to get a better understanding of what they're dealing with. And I may come to understand as I listen and talk and encourage them that what I thought was a flaw really isn't. But I'm using my physical eyes to observe a phenomenon that doesn't have a history behind it. But if I were to use the eyes of my heart, I know my history. I know my circumstances. And so the Lord Jesus is giving clear exhortation to use the eyes of the heart to evaluate evolution of that flaw in my life. And when we venture to assist them, because this is what he says in verse 4, how will you say to your brother, allow me, I will cast out the moat from your eye. I'm going to remove that little piece of chaff. And he says, and behold, the beam is in your eye. So I'm venturing to help them but I'm clearly not discerning that there is something far larger in my life that I need to, to, to address. And I'm trying to, to drive out a piece of chaff from my brother's life, some flaw in my brother's life. I want to, I want to deprive that chaff of having a negative influence in his life or her life, but I failed miserably to recognize that I have a greater flaw. I have a greater flaw. The the, uh, law of judgment. And that is the instant I use my physical eyes to evaluate a brother or a sister not having uh, any knowledge of the history and evolution of that a fault, a flaw in their life. I'm literally ignorant. But the instant I, I place myself in a capacity like a potentate, like a king, like a judge and jury, all sitting in one pair of shoes, my own, to evaluate that person, I have triggered the law of judgment. And that law says that is exactly how people will deal with me. So if I want to avoid that eventuality, it behooves me (laughs) to apply the eyes of my heart in evaluating myself. And so the second uh, law is the law, what I call the law of holiness. (laughs) And it has two parts. Because he says, give not that which is holy, verse 6, to the dogs. 
nor cast your pearls before the swine, lest they trample them with their feet, and turning and rend you. So clearly we are dealing with people whose character is such that they are profane. They have no appreciation or relish or recognition of what is holy. And so they will do what their nature calls them to do, which is they will profane the very thing that is holy. But what do I do when I perceive their character? I perceive that a man or a, a person that that's, I'm interacting with may not have the capacity to appreciate what is sacred, what is holy. They're not able to distinguish what is profane from what is holy. Well, the question I have to ask myself is, well, what makes something holy? What makes a thing holy? What makes it set apart, if you will? Now, in Paul's writings, when he wrote to the church at Corinth, and and in both letters, he had a lot to say about what is holy from profane, because if you were to examine the letters, uh, there were quite a bit of, of um, <laughs> the church was in crisis. The church was in moral crisis. And Paul took time to address each issue with great detail. But what I'd love to bring your attention to is uh, when uh, at around chapter 6, and he asked the church that if they do not know that their bodies are members of Christ, their bodies, their physical bodies. And he asked, shall I then, taking the members of Christ, make them members of a harlot? And he said, God forbid. Do you not know that he that is joined to the harlot is one body? For the two, he says, shall be one flesh. But he that is joined to the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. For every sin which a man practices is without the body, but he that commits fornication sins against his own body. And this is the, 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 the critical point right here in verse 19 when he says, Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit which, you, which is in you, which you have of God? You are not your own. You don't belong to yourself. You are holy. So a person is holy First, by virtue of their connection to the Lord Jesus Christ, joined to the Lord, one spirit, his spirit and my spirit joined together. And by virtue of his indwelling, that makes my body sacred. And since my body is sacred, is holy, I have no right to use my body in a way that denigrates it, that profanes it. And so he deals with sexual unions, joining one's body to another in a relationship that is sacrilegious, a one flesh connection, forgetting that I am joined to the Lord Jesus Christ, one spirit, 1 Corinthians six seventeen. Our bodies are his sacred, his holy place, his temple, his shrine. And therefore, when I am interacting with people, perhaps uh, uh, where my affections are involved, I need to take great care. I need to exercise great care 
not to use what God has made sacred, holy, sanctified, set apart for himself, not to use in a way that which he has set apart for himself and profane it. In fact, if you were to read the Old Testament, especially the Chronicles and, and the Kings, and you read the history of the kings, many of them, especially in the northern kingdom, profaned the temple, profaned the uh, religious rites and, and ordinances. And they went after idols. They served idols. They served Baal. They profaned the ordinances, the statutes, and they profaned themselves. And they forgot and were blinded to the fact that they were made sacred by virtue of their connection with Jehovah, the God of Israel. And so we are exhorted about casting our pearls to swine. And we're not suggesting that people are swine or dogs, but the, 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 this is analogous to the fact that there are people in the world that have no relish, no uh, appreciation for what is sacred <laughs> because they are, in fact, pagan in thinking. And so they would not be able to, to put the same value on the thing or on one's person or on one's body, on one's spirit and attach that value and behave uh, in a way that's commensurate with that value. And so if one is, uh, if one has open eyes, okay, the eyes of the heart, able to discern risk and opportunity, here's a clearly, a clearly an evident risk to cast what is holy, to use what is holy in a profane way. Why? Because we are blind to the character of the people that we are associating ourselves with. And not only that, we have to ask ourselves some additional questions. If my body is a sacred place and indwelt by the Spirit of God, and God is, if you will, walking into my social circles, my life, my job, my home, God is present in me, wanting to live through me for the good and benefit and blessing of others. But if I have aligned myself, like in the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, Okay, uh, Israel was, was exhorted not to yoke two different sort of animals. And it was uh, a picture, if you will, of two people not sharing the same values, the same objectives, the same motives, the same lifestyle and relationships. In all of these areas, there is a disparity in their lifestyle and spiritual lives. Light versus darkness. We see those two contrasts throughout scripture. Righteousness versus lawlessness. Uh, you can look at the king, uh, the reign of Josiah. One of the last real righteous kings. But he made a clear distinction in his kingship between what was right and what was lawless. And he brought the people together in such a way that they covenanted to walk with Jehovah. They were yoked together correctly. 
And so now, as in the first case, we talk about the law of judging. Well, here's the law of holiness. And that is, if I have trusted, if I have placed my confidence and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, both for the forgiveness and payment for my my crimes against God, my moral flaws and faults and failures, and my connection with Adam to be released from that, if I have embraced his sacrificial work, I, as a repentant sinner, have been released from that judgment. And my history is expunged completely and I'm now indwelt, sealed by the Spirit of God. I, you, who have made that act of faith, have been separated to God and indwelt and sealed by the Spirit, making us holy. And the law of holiness is such that having now been sealed by the Spirit of God, if I go forth into the world, living into the cosmos, and I take that which is holy and give it to those who are profane in thinking and living, they cannot appreciate the value, the sacredness of it, and they will treat it in a profane manner, and ultimately, they will treat me and you in a profane manner, not because they of themselves are evil, but because of the mindset and spirit and relationship or lack thereof to the Lord Jesus Christ, their eyes are not open to see. The eyes of their hearts do not perceive the holiness of God and the moral responsibility to bring glory to God. Hence, the failure of the Christian to recognize this lends themselves to making this error and triggering this law of holiness. That is, when we give that which is holy to those who cannot appreciate it and are profane in lifestyle and thinking, they will denigrate that holy thing, albeit our bodies, or our values. And then ultimately, that relationship that we have with them, we will find to be tense, combative, uh, uh, if you will, not bearing the fruits of righteousness. It won't be a sacred relationship. And then we come to the last one. Uh, this one I love. I call it the, the law of answered prayer. The law of answered prayer. And I made reference to the law of attraction earlier. And if you were to go uh, 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 and Google, uh, you know, the law of attraction, look at how many hits you're going to get. Okay, thousands. Because it's, it's the popular thing that folks are focused, if you will, on and, and believing that there's a law out there that when you are, uh, positively uh, focused on, on certain good, certain things, a thing desired that in time it's going to come into your life. But we seem to forget that this is a moral universe created by an omnipotent, all-wise, all-present God. And we, the devotees of our Lord Jesus Christ, have entered into that relationship. 
that he now has not only become God, but he has become to us our father. In fact, when the uh, disciples asked the Lord Jesus, I believe in Luke chapter 11, to teach us to pray, he began with our father. There's a sacred, holy relationship there. So we ask ourselves, well, what do I do when I see need? That's the operative word, need. What do I do when I need direction? What do I do when I encounter obstacles? We know instinctively that answered prayer comes from God. We know that. We, don't need, we know it as a cognitive concept. And, and we've read the scriptures and seen men and women having a variety of needs. Kings perhaps, uh, you know, under siege by enemies or women who may be barren or those who needed to be healed and it came to the Lord Jesus, they knew if I ask, I'm going to receive. But, but the Lord Jesus is really drilling down to give us some vital information about the law of answered prayer. When I recognize a need, how do I guarantee and I want to emphasize that in your thinking. How do I guarantee I'm going to get an answer? What assurance do I have that the answer will come? Oh, this, I have to tell you, I, have to, I want to encourage you. And, and I'm going to make the statement and then we're going, to, we're going to drill down a little bit. But I've read and I have experienced the need here we go, to pray until the answer comes. To ask, to continue to ask of God until the answer comes. And the operative word is importunity. This is the key to the law of answered prayer. And we will find that, for example, you don't have to turn to it, but, you know, why not? Uh, we'll find that in uh, Luke uh, chapter 8, I believe, importunity, staying with it, a certain shamelessness to stay before God until the answer comes, to, to keep asking until the answer comes. And we must not uh, give up, if you will. Did I say Luke chapter 8? I think I meant Luke chapter 11, if memory serves me correctly. Okay? The Lord Jesus says this. He says, uh, in teaching his disciples, Who among you shall have a friend and shall go... Uh, to him at midnight and say to him, friend, let me have three loaves since a friend of mine is come on a journey and is come to me and I have nothing to set before him. And he within answering uh, should say, do not disturb me. The door is already shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise up and give it to you. And the Lord Jesus says, I say to you, although he will not get up and give it to them, give, give them to him because he is his friend, but because of his shamelessness, his importunity, at any rate, he will rise and give him as many as he wants. And then he goes on to say, I say to you, ask and keep on asking. That is what the word means in the orig original text. 
Ask and keep on asking, and it shall be given to you. And then he goes on further down in, in his discourse and says, But who of you that is a father shall a son ask bread, and the father shall give him a stone? Or also a fish instead of a fish uh, shall give him a serpent? So the point he's trying to make is that, as he says, you're, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much rather shall the father of heaven gave his Holy Spirit to them that ask him. God is cognizant of my need. But what he wants me to do, what he wants you to do, is to ask and to keep on asking. And ultimately, by and by, in a future time, however long, the answer will come. The answer will come. Now you ask yourself, well, what is importunity? Well, it has several shades of meaning. Number one, it shows a lack of modesty. Like the person who continues to knock on the door, they have a need and they have a friend and they are willing to uh, uh, place that friendship in a secondary position and elevate the need as primary and continue to knock until there's a response. Another shade of meaning is that there's a sense of earnestness this is important to me. There's a, a, a third shade of meaning, a, a sort of shameless persistence. And this, this lack of modesty, this earnestness, this persistence is the, the germane characteristic that is effective in earthly matters in wooing people to respond to the need. Guess what? It is the same characteristic that when we set ourselves apart to seek God's faith, and especially as we have been doing, meeting with God beside still waters, garnering our resources inwardly, setting our hearts and minds to seek the presence and face of God, reminding him of his great and precious promises. When we have come to God with that mindset, we are given assurances of an answer. In fact, there are certain promises in, in the Bible uh, that are associated with importunity and, 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 and being in God's presence. I'll just share one that I, I thought is so sacred. In John chapter 14, uh, the Lord Jesus, in his, one of his final discourses with his disciples before the, 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 the period that his suffering was literally around the corner, and he says... Um, and he was telling them about the works that he shall do, the works that he did, we shall do as his followers also. And then he says, greater works than these, greater works shall he do because I go to the Father. And this is it right here. He says, whatsoever you shall ask in my name, this I will do. This is really, the magnitude of this beggars description. Whatsoever you shall ask, the, the, the need has been placed on the line. What is it that you are asking of me? And he says, this will I do. The Lord Jesus is attending to my request personally. And he says that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And then he reiterates again, if you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. Well, my friends, I ask you the question, what prevents you 
from exercising importunity, earnestness, lack of modesty, shameless persistence in coming before God and waiting on him and waiting and praying and if need be, lending strength to your request with fasting that the God of heaven, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has become our Father will grant to the petitioner the thing that he or she requests. And very often the reason why the answer doesn't come is because we cease to pray. It is a labor. It is a work. It is an exercise in faith. In fact, the Lord Jesus earlier, we, we, we addressed this in Matthew chapter 6 when he was talking about uh, uh, giving alms and, and fasting and praying. And one of the things that he said about praying is that when you enter into your closet and close the door, God, God meets with you there. God meets with you there. My friend, perhaps the most sacred spiritual exercise of the believer is to bend heart head and knee in the presence of the majesty on high and to remind the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in that sacred quiet place that he has given to you and me great and precious, great and rare promises that by these promises you and I might have the supreme privilege of interacting with, fellowshipping with, having this dynamic living relationship with the unseen God and waiting and waiting and waiting with the full assurance of faith that as he has promised, he is able to perform it. And to remind him that he says, whatever I shall ask in the name of our blessed Lord Jesus Christ, he says, the Lord Jesus himself says, this will I do. I won't tell you what it is, but I have certain sacred requests. Some I've been praying for for at least four years, but I'm not going to stop because I believe that the answer is coming. It's on its way. It is impossible for God to lie. And my friends, I urge you, I encourage you, I implore you, firstly, not to judge, not to set yourself as a judge and jury over the faults and flaws of another, but with the eyes of the heart and the sacred word of God to turn that light upon ourselves and ask God by the Spirit to examine us and to help us to judge and examine ourselves that we may come before God and own and confess the things that we have fallen short with. And having done so, the Lord Jesus promises, we will be in a better position to assist another brother or sister who may be struggling with some fault or flaw, but compared to ours, it's far smaller. And that our, the eyes of our hearts may be open, that we would recognize what is sacred by virtue of the presence of the Holy Spirit within us, we treat as sacred the things that makes the thing sacred, which is the very presence of the Holy Spirit of God. And that we would be of blessing to those who may not be able to see, 
but certainly not to profane that which God has sanctified, set apart as holy. And lastly, the law of answered prayer, that we may set ourselves, our minds, to seek God, to bring our petitions before him, to ask in the name of the Lord Jesus, to live and walk with God, as it were, beside still waters in such a manner that we delight in his presence and he with us. And in time, according to his will and timing, he grants to us the thing we have petitioned him for. And it gives our hearts joy to receive answer prayer. Why? Because we see that the God that people can't even see is alive and well and we meet with him always in our sacred place. May God help us so to do and to walk with him beside still waters. Thank you for joining Beside Still Waters podcast with Christian Javois. Beside Still Waters is the quiet moment in the stillness of God's presence to receive guidance, light, and grace to live by faith. I hope you've been helped and encouraged to press on living for the glory of God. It has been a pleasure and a privilege to connect with you on this podcast. To stay connected, please follow Christian Javois on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for tuning in, and we will see you on the next podcast of Beside Still Waters.